MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 38, I think, of Clean Up on Aisle 45 for Wednesday, October 6th, 2021. I am your host, Allison Gill, also known as AG. Andrew Torres is in Europe gallivanting around being bougie. But today I am honored to be joined by former federal prosecutor, host of the On Topic podcast and also a real life lawyer, Renato Mariotti. (laughs) Thanks, AG. Always happy to join you. It is a pleasure to join you as well. I haven't talked to you in a while, so thank you for filling in. Um, I'd also like to thank our new patrons, and they are Amanda Loomis. Thank you, Amanda. Lisa, just Lisa, it says. And then, (laughs) this is a great name. This is not the greatest voting system in the world. No, this is just a plurality. And I think that's a, a nod to Tenacious D, a tribute, if you will. So thank you to our new patrons. If you want to become a patron and support what we do here, you can do so for as little as a dollar an episode. Just head to patreon.com slash aisle45pod. That's aisle four five pod And with that, let's hit the A block, Renato. I want to talk a little bit more about Mr. John Eastman. Uh, last week on the show, Morgan Stringer and I broke down the six-part memo he wrote that gave instructions for how Pence could throw the election to Trump during the January 6th certification process. And despite the entire memo seeming like seditious conspiracy or obstruction of Congress or maybe conspiracy against the United States, I don't know, so many laws that possibly could have been broken there. I think it's important to know a little bit more about who John Eastman is. Yeah, he's kind of a mysterious figure. I'll tell you, until recently, people didn't know who the heck this guy was. And I think there's not a lot of people who've been giving context about John Eastman. Other you know, about other than what he was just doing with that memo. Um, although the New York Times uh, I, with Maggie Haberman and Mike Schmidt, they did take a crack on it on this recent piece that came out on October 2nd called, quote, the lawyer behind the memo on how Trump could stay in office. Boy, is that an understatement, right? <laughs> yeah, it seems like the entire article is understated. The lead from the byline reads, quote, John Eastman was a little known but respected conservative lawyer. Then he became influential with Donald Trump and counseled him on how to retain power after losing the election. I could rewrite that uh, headline probably pretty easily. Uh, He is not a little known respected conservative lawyer. He's been in these conservative circles for a long time and counseled him on how to retain power. Uh, I think he gave him instructions on how to overthrow the government. But anyway, uh, (laughs) former conservative. He's a former conservative activist turned never Trumper. Matthew Sheffield 
uh, who who is the former conservative activist I'm talking about, he was unsatisfied with that explanation and how much Maggie and Mike at the Times missed in their reporting. He tweeted, quote, so it appears Maggie Hamerman and Mike Schmidt wrote a profile of John Eastman, Trump's coup lawyer, but didn't recount his long record of extremist activity. Since they omitted this crucial information, he says, here's a short thread of what's missing from the article. Yeah, and in fact, you know, he actually thinks the information was omitted, not really missed. You know, for example, you know, he says Eastman's anything but a, quote, little known but respected conservative lawyer. And this is uh, Sheffield talking here. He says he has a decades-long history leading hate groups, especially those against LGBTQ people. He's the chairman of the National Organization for Marriage, a highly funded group opposing marriage equality. I got to say, by the way, AG, I don't understand what you could, how you could call this guy a conservative lawyer. I mean, what is conservative about overthrowing our constitutional <laughs> system of government anyway? Yeah. The language, anyway. the language is all a bit parsed, but... Um, you're right. Eastman called homosexuality barbarism and said on video that he supported a Ugandan law that made homosexual acts life sentence offenses. And to take that a step further, Sheffield points out that Eastman's National Organization for Marriage group is intimately affiliated with World Congress of Families, which is a radical anti-LGBT group funded by hmm, Russian oligarchs close to Vladimir Putin. Eastman and others have been Fetted in lavish conferences in Russia that are part of Putin's destabilization efforts. Uh, Russia's efforts with the WCF are part of a longstanding Putin effort to openly fund extremists in the U.S. and many other countries to destabilize their politics. Yeah, Eastman's also affiliated with the Claremont Institute, which is this far-right think tank that wants to impose sort of a Christian supremacism. And that have been, that's really been vocal about offering excuses to try to downplay right-wing violence. Mm. Uh, Laura Field recently wrote for the Bulwark about the Claremont Institute saying, quote, an indication of where things stand today. In 2019, Claremont welcomed as a Lincoln fellow, the conspiracist and, and self-proclaimed, quote, king of fake news, Jack Michael Posobiec III. Uh, well, I've got to tell you, AG, I don't know, but you have run into him a few times <laughs> On uh, Twitter myself, uh, he was he's really best known as the promoter of that Pizzagate hoax. Uh, boy, what an understated name for such a, an evil, mm. uh, an evil conspiracy theory. And then, of course, the Seth Rich conspiracy theory as well. Uh, he was then working as a correspondent and host for the One America News Network, which became one of the major promoters of false claims about the 2020 election. Claremont remains proud of its affiliation with this man, with an institute official recently calling him, quote, one of the best, best public political voices in America. I, mean, I, don't, I wouldn't call him a political voice. I'd, I'd call him a conspiracy theorist uh, and, and purveyor of falsehoods. But anyways, he did that literally that proclamation from Claremont came just days before it was revealed that a right wing website that Pasobiec frequently promoted was a actually a Russian disinformation project. A lot of Russia coming up here. And, and according to Sheffield, he goes on to say Eastman's actions, urging Pence to impose a Trump dictatorship on the U.S. are part of a huge tradition of Christianist thought, which obsesses over dying for Jesus and spiritual warfare with liberal Christians, atheists and Muslims, and goes on to say, this tradition has received almost zero coverage in American media because to report on it and to disclose that its adherents are in the very highest echelons of Republican power instantly destroys the access journalism that has corrupted the media. But 
I will say, Renato, many of us have spoken out about Barr in particular and his vision of white Protestant theocracy, which is rooted in some of the myths of white supremacy and and the fear of the loss of uh, that particular white supremacy is actually what motivated many of the rioters on the on January 6th. That's according to a case study that came out a few months ago. Wow. I will tell you, by the way, AG, I actually have family members who believe this stuff. And it is it's mm-hmm. scary that there are people who believe that, for example, Donald Trump was anointed by God to be the head of mm-hmm. the United States of America. These sort of beliefs, I think, are so dangerous. And, you know, Eastman was working with Charlie Kirk, and who we also both have, I'm sure you've run across him on Twitter as I have, somebody such a such a, a person who is full of hate, deliberately pushing falsehoods, and he was working with Charlie Kirk to spread their propaganda to young people using, quote, critical race theory, unquote, activism. There's just a long history here of Eastman and his extreme conservative activities and connections. And conservative, once again, uh, obviously a misname there. Right wing may be a better way of putting it. You know, Sheffield says mm-hmm. that what prompted his thread was the idea put forth by the Times that Eastman was somehow a relatively cool guy that was magically corrupted somehow uh, by affiliating with Donald Trump. But in his mind, it, it, he Sheffield saying Eastman's coup advice is pretty much exactly who he has always been. Quote, his behavior was apothesis, not aberration. Oh, very well said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that that was pretty succinct, a succinct way to put it. So uh, if you've read or intend to read that New York Times piece by Haberman and Schmidt, please, please check out the history of John Eastman for yourself. Um, And and Renato, I want to ask your opinion about uh, going back to this Eastman memo. I had mentioned kind of early on uh, in this segment that it 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 seems like there could could be part of a of a criminal scheme or conspiracy um, especially coupled with, you know, the the letters that Jeffrey Clark intended to write from the DOJ to these states to have them have backup slate, elector slates ready to go so that Pence could then throw them out per Eastman's memo and bring these new electors in and just sort of ignore the voters of seven states. And then then that would be thrown to the House of Representatives and each each delegation, each state has one delegate that they can vote on and the Republicans would put Trump back in power. It's just like this whole thing, because I remember, Renato, when we were discussing this, like we were thinking of the possibility, like what if nobody gets to 270 uh, electors? Right. Um, and, and we talked about what would happen at that point. Uh, it would go to the House and Trump could be, you know, reelected by the 26 Republican delegations in, in the House of Representatives. Um, but we it never occurred to me that no one would get to 270 because Pence was going to throw out seven states. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. And I got to tell you, this whole subject is so remarkable. It's like something out of some sort of dystopian novel or a really bad Netflix or Hulu series, uh, you know, talking about, you know, what what if sort of thing. I've got to say that um, it, it's so shocking. And what what is really bizarre is there has not really been as much coverage of this and attention paid to it as you might think, AG. I mean, yes, there are certainly some networks that have talked about it, no question. Uh, but a lot of others that have not. A lot there are there are a lot of new news organizations that have it. There was a piece recently by the Washington Post talking about that kind of a media criticism piece, talking about how few uh, outlets have covered it. And I've got to say, um, 
you know, it really seems to me like there has been a, you know, there's that, that image of the frog boiling where the, the temperature keeps going up and you don't really hear the temperature, you don't really feel uh, the water boil until it's too late. I think that Trump has done and proposed so many things that run a contrary to our constitutional traditions that maybe the media has just gotten used to it. Uh, but I, I, you know, between that and also Congress and the Justice Department not really seeming to have as much um, enthusiasm for investigating these things. It'll be interesting to see what the January 6th committee does regarding this matter in particular, because that, as far as I can tell, is really the only investigation that might tell us some of the details. I think will give us a sense of whether or not a crime was committed here. Yeah, and I don't understand how the Department of Justice could not be investigating that as part of the scheme. Uh, you know, they're doing the boots on the ground insurrection stuff that pretty openly that we know about. But to, div- to divorce that from uh, the the rest of the conspiracy, the rest of the scheme seems, I don't know, it's, it's, it seems like it goes against what what an investigation should be doing. But I mean, you know... Proving crimes like seditious conspiracy, obstruction of Congress, et cetera, uh, you know, conspiracy to conspiracy against the United States are are hard, the high bars, especially if you're talking about like former presidents and Department of Justice officials. But they've taken the steps like Biden's taken the steps to say no executive privilege. Uh, Merrick Garland has said that he will not stop any former DOJ officials from testifying um, which is is odd for institutionalists to say, and I know that the that the Congressional Select Committee is saying that we will be working closely with the Department of Justice to make sure we don't step on any criminal investigative toes. Um, but I I can't see how th- this doesn't fall into the category of of one of those crimes, especially since some of the low level rioters have been you know they the Department of Justice has had them plead guilty to obstructing Congress, which would tie in perfectly with all of these other things like the Eastman memo and the Clark letters and the Rosen phone call uh, as an obstruction of Congress, as, as that crime. And it, I feel like these should just, it's like, it seems easy, like a no-brainer to me. I, I hope they're investigating it. I, I hope they're investigating it too. I'm just, I have to say, gee, I'm not heartened by it. I don't see outward evidence of the of an investigation. I am concerned the Biden administration is not uh, investigating this matter on a you know in terms of the criminal part of it and the justice department obviously congress is doing you know taking some steps in january 6th i guess that remains to be seen i do think i will say this it can be challenging as you mentioned at one point to make cases against people like this i think eastman he's a lawyer he's going to claim that he was just presenting legal theories and options uh, but is you you know but what he was proposing was nothing short than overthrowing our constitutional system of government. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it is really, it's not an overstatement. That's really something, right? To just say, well, this isn't an overstatement. This is actually what he was doing. Uh, and so to suggest that um, and to propose that to the president of the United States and have the president of the United States trying to push the vice president to go along with this, First of all, it's something that not only should be front page news and everyone should be concerned about, but it seems to me like a matter that the Justice Department should see, well, what actually happened here? What was involved? What affirmative steps were taken? Uh, at the very least, to get to the bottom of it so people can deter, you know, okay. So if they say, well, this, that we think this person may have committed a crime, this person, we don't have enough to charge this person, we do, then I think the American people deserve to know one way or the other. 
Yeah, that's that's all I'm saying is, uh, you know, I, I'm not a proponent of the no news is good news or no news is bad news. Uh, you know, tell us. Tell us what your charging decision is. Um, and even on something like obstruction of justice from the you know, volume two of the Mueller report, if you're not going to charge it, just say and so that I can be mad about it. <laughs> 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 um, you know, I bet probably uh, right there is maybe a reason they wouldn't. But um not me specifically, but a lot of Americans would be very upset if if this president and this administration doesn't face any accountability, because that's how we restore trust, I think, and faith in, in main justice. But, you know, maybe that's just me. Um, Renato, we have more stuff to get to, you know, talking about uh, trying to overthrow elections. We have a, a bunch of information coming from uh, Facebook, a whistleblower who was on 60 Minutes this past Sunday. And um, we're going to talk about that right on the other side of the break. So everybody stick around. Hey, everybody, it's Allison Gill, and today's episode of Clean Up on Aisle 45 is brought to you by Feels CBD. CBD isn't about what you feel. It's about what you don't feel, such as stress, anxiety, and pain. I definitely recommend CBD if you haven't tried it yet. This safe and organic product has helped me sleep better. It's reduced my anxiety and reduced pain. It It helps me keep a clear head, too, and I feel great and it's easy to do with feels. CBD naturally reduces stress, anxiety, pain, and sleeplessness without hangovers or addictions. I feel calmer, my muscles are less sore after workouts, my mood is lifted, and I can fall asleep more easily at night. Just put a few drops of feels under your tongue and feel the difference within minutes. Deliveries are hassle-free and delivered directly to your door without a prescription. And you can call their CBD hotline for assistance to find your right CBD dose. It's amazing. The Feels Monthly Membership makes self-care simple. You'll save money on every order, and you can pause or cancel at any time very easily. So start feeling better with Feels. Become a member today by going to feels.com slash cleanup, and you'll get 50% off your first order with free shipping. That's feels, F-E-A-L-S dot com slash cleanup to become a member and get 50% automatically taken off your first order with free shipping. Feels.com slash cleanup. Uh, everybody, welcome back. Uh, recently, Mark Zuckerberg had to testify on Capitol Hill with a booster seat about a tranche of thousands of documents released by a whistleblower at Facebook. And that whistleblower identified herself as Frances Haugen and sat with an interview for 60 Minutes this past Sunday, as I said right before the break. And I'd like for us to go over some of those highlights uh, of that interview. Yeah, it was quite an interview. Uh, really, so what a what a brave woman uh, for coming forward and, and sharing so much. She's a 37-year-old former Facebook project manager. She worked on civic integrity issues at the company, and she claims that the documents she released shows that Facebook knows that its platforms are used to spread hate, violence, and misinformation, and that the company has tried to hide that evidence. Here's a quote from her interview. Quote, The thing I saw at Facebook over and over again was that there were conflicts of interest between what was good for the public and what was good for Facebook. And Facebook over and over again chose to optimize for its own interests, like making more money. Yeah, always about the bottom line. Um, 60 Minutes correspondent Scott Pelley quoted one internal Facebook document as saying, quote, we have evidence for a variety of sources from a variety of sources that hate speech, divisive political speech and misinformation on Facebook and the family of apps, Instagram, WhatsApp, are affecting societies around the world. About a month ago, Haugen filed at least eight complaints with the SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission, alleging that the company is hiding research about its shortcomings from investors and the public. She also shared the documents with The Wall Street Journal, which published a multi-part investigation showing Facebook was aware of, the, of its problems uh, with its apps, including the negative 
impact of misinformation and the harm caused, especially to young girls, by Instagram. Yeah, Haugen started at Facebook in 2019 after previously working for other tech giants like Google and Pinterest. And she set to testify on Tuesday before the Senate Subcommittee on Consumer Protection, Product Safety and Data Security. And this show airs the day after that testimony. Yeah, so we'll have to go over that testimony next week um, here on Cleanup on L45. Uh, And as expected, Facebook has aggressively pushed back against the reports, calling many of the claims misleading and arguing that its apps do more harm than good. 50.1% is good and (laughs) 49.9% bad. Uh, Quote, every day, those aren't the exact numbers, Uh, but every day, they say, every day our teams have to balance protecting the ability of billions of people to express themselves openly with the need to keep our platforms safe, uh, a safe and positive place. That's that's the spokesperson for Facebook, one of them, Lena Peach. And she said that in a statement to CNN Business immediately following the 60 Minutes interview. She said, we continue to make significant improvements to tackle the spread of misinformation and harmful content. Beep, burp, robot. Uh, to suggest we encourage bad content and do nothing is just not true. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, several hours after the interview aired, she released a more than 700 word statement laying out what what the company calls, quote, missing facts, unquote, from the segment and saying the interview, quote, quote, used select company materials to tell a misleading story about the research we do to improve our products, close quote. Mm, that's more <clears throat> cherry picking than uh, than Ted Cruz does. Um, Haugen said she was recruited by Facebook, as you said, Renato, in 2019. She took the job to work on addressing misinformation. But after the company decided to dissolve its civic integrity team shortly after the 2020 election, her feelings about the company started to change. She suggested that this decision and moves by the company to turn off other election protection measures, such as misinformation prevention tools, allowed the platform to be used to help organize the January 6th riot on Capitol Hill. Quote, they basically said, oh, good, we made it through an election. There weren't riots. We can get rid of civic integrity now. (laughs) She said, Uh fast forward a couple months and we had the insurrection. When they got rid of civic integrity, it was the moment where I was like, I don't trust that they're willing to actually invest what needs to be invested to keep Facebook from being dangerous. Hogan also told 60 Minutes that Facebook's algorithms that are that is designed to show users content that, that they're mo- that they're most likely to engage with is responsible for many of its problems. Here's a quote from her, quote, "One of the consequences of how Facebook is picking out that content today, it is that it is optimizing for content that gets engagement, a reaction. But its own research is showing that content that is hateful that is divisive, that is polarizing, it's easier to inspire people to anger than it is to other emotions, end quote. She said that the company recognizes that, quote, if they change the algorithm to be safer, people will spend less time on the site, they'll click on less ads, and so the company's going to make less money, end quote. Ah, so yeah, it's all about, well, we we should need to keep the uh, posts that get the most engagement. It just turns out those are the ones that make people the most angry. Uh, and have the most hate speech. And, and the the spokesperson, Peach, said again in her Sunday night statement that the platform depends on being used in ways that bring people closer together to attract advertisers, saying protecting our community is more important than maximizing our profits. <clears throat> An internal memo obtained by the New York Times earlier Sunday, Clegg disputed claims that Facebook contributed to the January 6th riot. They said, quote, social media 
has a big impact on society in recent years, and Facebook is often a place where much of this debate plays out. So it's natural for people to ask whether it's part of the problem. But the idea that Facebook is the chief cause of polarization isn't supported by the facts. Mm. Yeah. I well, whether they're the chief cause or not, they could be making it worse, right? That's that's the that's the point we're trying to make here. At least I think that's the point Halgan mm-hmm. was trying to make. And she said, quote, while no one at Facebook is malevolent, the incentives are misaligned. Facebook makes more money when you consume more content. People enjoy engaging with things that elicit an emotional reaction. And the more anger that they get exposed to, the more they interact and the more they consume. Yeah, and I feel like Cambridge Analytica knew that, right? Black Cube, Cambridge Analytica, Russia, the, you know, <laughs> the social media ops. We got a warning this past, I think, March from the FBI saying, look out for more social media activity from uh, from Russia, from Russian actors in the next eight to 16 months because, you know, they're going to be real mad about sanctions and, uh, you know... <laughs> Um, about sort of how the U.S. was, quote unquote, retaliating against interference in the 2020 election. So, you know, we've we've been duly warned uh, multiple times. Of course, a lot of those warnings when Trump was in office went unpublished, as we heard recently, Renato, if you remember that DHS whistleblower saying, you know, they told me to not share any intel about a Russian election interference um, and, and, you know, whistleblowers and, and, and things like that. They were purposefully trying to keep it buried and as we know, Barr made multiple inappropriate reactions to volume one of the Mueller report. So as to hide the breadth and depth of Russian interference in our elections, particularly using social media sites. So this has just been a giant cover up from the beginning. Yeah, it's really I will tell you, social media can be designed in a way that can produce different results. And what I think we're seeing here is really a need for Congress to regulate and make a determination uh, to step in and ensure that social media is going to take steps to reduce the harm that comes from polarization and, and potential violence and hate speech and many other things that are getting spread through these platforms. Yeah, because while, yes, you probably make more money with hate and anger, um, that's not a good way to make money. <laughs> Absolutely. That's why we need con- congressional. I think we need some congressional regulation here because you can't trust these companies to regulate themselves. Yeah, no, I I concur. I concur wholeheartedly. Uh, All right. We uh, will be right back with a a brand new comings and going segment. We got a lot of people coming on board here and it's it's a lot of good news. So we're going to end on a high note right after this quick break. Everyone stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's Allison Gill from Clean Up on Aisle 45, and today's show is brought to you by Policy Genius. It is never a bad time to find ways to bundle your home and auto insurance and save on coverage with Policy Genius. As you might know, I recently decided to get rid of my USAA insurance because they kept advertising with Tucker Carlson, so I used Policy Genius to find my new insurance company and the lowest rate that's best for me. It's fast and easy to compare home and auto policies, plus with Policy Genius, uh, you can find coverage similar to what you have now, but at a lower price. They've saved customers an average of $1,250 a year over what they were paying for home and auto insurance before. Whether you're getting up a new policy, whether you're setting up a new policy or switching your old one, their team will handle all the paperwork. And this was big for me. I didn't have to do any of the legwork. Getting started is easy. Just visit PolicyGenius.com, answer a few quick questions about yourself and your property, and PolicyGenius will do the rest. 
They compare rates from America's top insurers from Progressive to Allstate to find you the lowest quotes. The Policy Genius team can look for ways to save you more money, too, including bundling your home and auto policies. And if they find a better rate than what you're paying now, they'll switch you over for free. Their top-notch services earn Policy Genius thousands of five-star reviews across Trustpilot and Google. So head to PolicyGenius.com to get started right now. Policy Genius, when it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. Welcome back. Recently, President Biden appointed another round of judicial nominees to federal courts across the country. After the Republicans stacked the courts during the Trump administration, it's clear that the Biden administration needs to continue to swiftly make these appointments. Yeah. And, uh, you know, from well, the statistics, I think he's appointed more judges uh, to the federal bench than in the first, you know, however many months of his presidency than, than most other presidents. But the appointments are notable for reflecting the diversity of the nation that they are going to be working for as as public servants, as, as, as judges here. From the first Hispanic district judge in Ohio to the second black woman judge in the northern district of Georgia, President Biden's nominees are once again diverse and look like America. And they're also, I think this is the kind of the most important thing. And I've brought this up on previous shows, Renato, that there he's Biden is sort of blowing out that uh, that myth that, you know, we don't nominate many diverse candidates because there just aren't enough qualified diverse candidates. The the qualifications mm-hmm. of these nominees is is unprecedented. Right. And they, you know, they yes. represent a diversity of backgrounds. For example, Biden nominated a woman who would become the first former federal defender to become a district judge in Georgia. Defender. That's awesome. Yeah, it's really a, it's really a change. I think it's an important part of diversity in that, you know, if you look at the bench, let's say in my in my home city of Chicago, many of my former colleagues, former federal prosecutors are on the bench. There's nothing wrong uh, with that. I like fe- former federal prosecutors. I, you know, I am one. But there's a different perspective that comes from being a defense attorney and working as a federal defender. It's an important perspective, and it's a perspective that is underrepresented in the federal bench. So reflecting that diversity and experience, I think, is important. And as you said, I mean, these nominees are really qualified. They all were, went to top law schools, and many of them were already like state judges, federal magistrate judges. You had people who were you know, very high ranking supervisors at U.S. attorney's offices who are, you know, at the very high levels there. Other people who just had very, very accomplished uh, records in private practice. Yeah. And, and, and here's something cool, too. Biden also nominated four judges to the Superior Court for the District of Columbia, D.C., right, including the D.C. Solicitor General, two magistrate judges and a trial attorney in the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department. Yeah. And then, as, and as you mentioned, a very fast pace of appointments and confirmations. His nominees are winning U.S. Senate confirmation at a pace not seen in half a century. And hey, given Mitch McConnell's efforts to speed through nominations and stack the courts, this is not only an understandable development, I think it's a welcome one. Yeah, I agree. Um, and here's here's something uh, very cool, too. We've been wondering when this would pick up the pace uh, on on these nominations. But he, Biden nominated nine lawyers to run U.S. attorneys' offices across the country, bringing his total up to 25 U.S. attorney nominees. I think there are, what, 94 or something like that? Yeah, so exactly. About a quarter of the way there. Uh, these positions are important, obviously, because U.S. attorneys are essentially the chief federal law enforcement official in a particular 
area of the country, like, uh, you know, who's going to be the U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, the Eastern District of Virginia, uh, the, you know, D.C. District. We, you know, we have a lot of a lot of vacancies still to go. Uh, and and I'm, I'm glad we're sort of picking up the pace on that now that we're whew, 10 months into this administration. Well, absolutely. And, A.G., you know, you saw in the Trump during the Trump era how important those officials were, right? Like you had that prosecutor, the United States Attorney in the Northern District of Georgia resigning rather mm-hmm. than try to push a false investigation of supposed voter fraud. Or we had other circumstances, of course, where you had Trump trying to interfere in the Southern District of New York or the District of Columbia. So very important. And of course, like the judicial nominees, Biden's U.S. Attorney nominees were are also very diverse. For example, the first Black female attorneys are to lead multiple U.S. attorney's offices were nominated. And most of these nominees have very long track records as prosecutors. They all look like they're likely to get quickly confirmed. So, you know, this is just part of the process of of making this changeover and getting in people who we can be sure are committed to the rule of law. Yeah, and and it's interesting too that this that the clip of this pace is is faster than any in in half a century, especially when we have folks like Ted Cruz who are just, you know, f- just to be a dick, you know, are, are <laughs> blocking blocking unanimous consent and making us go through the full floor process of nomination. But uh, you know, it's it's again we we have Kamala maybe breaking some ties here, but these seem like very likely um, nominees that that will get plenty of, of Republican votes, uh, at least hopefully they'll be quickly confirmed. And like you said, it's very important because right now everything is so backed up in, in the federal courts because of COVID. Uh, and, you know, in D.C. alone, we got, what, 600 defendants in the insurrection. Um, so so these positions are, I think, very, very crucial uh, positions to have um, be filled as, as soon as possible. So I'm, I'm glad that this this is getting done. I, f- I feel like I can't remember how how long we were into um, into Trump's presidency. I mean, because just starting with January 20th, the whole thing was just a fire hose of crap. Uh, but I, I remember he fired them all and and appointed new ones. And it seemed like that was bigger news at the time than this appears to be. But uh, I, I believe that we have acting. I, I, I know a lot of U.S. attorneys have been asked to, you know, resign or you're out. Uh, I, but I, I, I would need to look up that exact number. But we're, we're well on our way. And, you know, law enforcement in this country is, is so important, especially we're trying to hold a lot of the past administration accountable, but also, you know, we've got reports of, you know, rising crime in some areas and, and underfunded DA's offices and local DA's offices where, you know, U.S. attorneys can help pick up the slack in those cases. Absolutely. It's important also, AG, you want to have people in these roles that are going to exercise their discretion as prosecutors in a responsible way and having people who are diverse, people who are very experienced. It just gives me a lot of confidence that we're going to make sure that we're we're getting uh, prosecutorial decisions that are made that that are not only consistent with the rule of law, but consistent with the values that we hold as a country. Yeah, and I'm hoping I, I, I don't I don't know what to expect out of the Court Reform Commission. Um, I personally think we need to expand the federal bench. I think that would take an act of Congress. 
Uh, I'm pretty <laughs> sure Mitch McConnell isn't going to allow that to happen. It's been with the filibuster in place. It's it's probably unlikely, uh, especially, you know, I'm talking about just the federal bench. I know a lot of people mm-hmm. want to expand the Supreme Court as well. And I think that that's even a, a, a bigger pipe dream. But that doesn't mean to stop pushing for it, because the more pu- the public wants it, the more the you know, the more the politics follow eventually. So so keep, you know, if, if that's what you're into and I'm into that, I think we need 13 uh, Supreme Court justices to to match the number of district courts we have, or circuit courts we have, but uh, that's gosh, number nine hundred and thirty seven on on a list of fifteen thousand things we need to get done right now. But it's it's also very uh, you know consequential, especially when you look at SB eight that we're trying to battle, and then of course we've got the Mississippi fifteen uh, week ban on abortion is going to be heard this fall with a with a decision out next June. I'm pretty sure we're going to see some chipping away, if not a complete gutting of Roe at that point. Uh, and so, but between now and then, I, I don't know that there's anything we can do congressionally. And it, maybe even with the filibuster in place, you'd have to have all 50 Democrats on board for expanding the courts. And, and I, I don't know that that's, I don't even know that they've polled them to see where they would vote on that, but I can't imagine all 50 would be into it. Yeah, I think it's very, very challenging to get this stuff done unless we can protect and expand our majorities. It's not going to be easy uh, in the upcoming election. And and we're already seeing now as reconciliation and this current fight over the budget uh, and over uh, President Biden's agenda, how difficult it is to get all the Democrats on board. Yeah, even just to raise the debt ceiling to pay our bills, right? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, Renato, it's been so wonderful to have you filling in uh, in this week. Everybody needs to check out your podcast called On Topic. And uh, I I really appreciate your time. And I know it's valuable. So thank you so much for joining me. Oh, anytime. Love. Always love chatting with you. Awesome. Everybody, we'll be back next week. And uh, until then, you know, take care of yourselves. Do your thing. I'm, I'm going to give my normal bean sign off, but I probably just say uh, thank you for listening to Clean Up on All 45. Clean Up on All 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.